0: Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on trial review is Andrew Ellenberg, a friend and someone I've worked with for years. He's an incredible trial lawyer who specializes in handling medical malpractice cases. He has significant expertise in the niche of hospital policies, processes, and their vulnerabilities. He's a partner in the Needle and Ellenberg law firm in Miami, Florida, and I'm going to read a little bit of his bio just so you get a little bit of background on Andrew. He's A-B rated by martindale Hubble and included in the Best Lawyers in America, Florida Super Lawyers, Florida Trends Legal Elite, South Florida Legal Guide to Top Lawyers, rated 10s per BAVO, and is recognized as one of Florida's best trial lawyers, representing individuals and families in cases of personal injury, wrongful death, medical malpractice, birth injury, nursing home, and assisted living facility negligence, car, truck, plane, and other types of accident cases. For more than 25 years, Mr. Ellenberg has been vigorously pursuing his client's rights to money damages when injury or death has been the result of negligence, medical malpractice, defective products, car, truck, and plane crashes, and nursing home and assisted living facility negligence and abuse. Mr. Ellenberg has obtained significant monetary results for clients in a wide variety of PI and wrongful death cases, and he has a statewide reputation for excellence in handling all manner of personal injury and wrongful death cases. He has expertise handling cases of injury and death caused by medical malpractice and healthcare negligence, causing injury or death to mothers and babies during pregnancy, labor, or delivery, injury and death resulting from emergency room negligence, anesthesia negligence surgical negligence, misdiagnosis, medical conditions, and negligence of hospital, surgery centers, medical clinics, nursing homes, and assisted living facilities. He and the firm have achieved numerous substantial awards and settlements, including many multi-million dollar results for clients who have suffered cerebral palsy, paralysis, brain damage, brachial plexus, herbs, clumped palsy, and wrongful death. And that's a mouthful. Welcome, Andrew, to Trial Review.
1: Good morning. I I don't know that I have enough time to do all that stuff, but I I have, actually. So thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: So let's start off a little bit about why you you do this, why that complicated medical negligence practice. It's it's a lot of complexity for, for a trial lawyer.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly the reason why, um, you know, I have practiced my whole career doing complex PI and death cases. I, I never had any um, that I can recall any of the more simple cases, so I was weaned on them, and I just like them. They're, they're, um, the complexity entices me, and there's a Tremendous satisfaction in being able to take complex ideas and make them simple, both for my clients, and that's the only people I really care about, and um, explaining it to strangers. Uh, Complex processes, complex ideas, complex pieces of anatomy and uh, body functions or product functions and making them simple and digestible is really critical to what we all do. And uh, it's something I, I've always enjoyed without regard to practicing law. So I love putting it to use for my clients and the wide variety of cases that you described, although a good chunk of them, as you alluded to, are um, healthcare care consumer cases. And, and that's really how I, I like to think about them is uh, there's no difference between you, me, and the people who sit across the table from us when we work for them. Um, We're consumers or potential consumers of what may be perhaps the biggest industry in the country, and that is healthcare. And uh, it's a daunting, terrifying prospect to you, to me, to our families, and uh, unfortunately to all those folks who sit across a desk from me or a computer screen in recent months telling me about some a misfortune that's happened to their child or their husband or their wife or some other loved one.
0: It's interesting because when I was injured in my accident and had to have um, surgery on my face uh, due to the, the facial injuries I suffered, I learned after the fact that what uh, what had been done really wasn't optimal. And, you know, my if you look at my the MRI of my jaw, my jaw is cockeyed because they, they basically set the jaw, wiring it together without getting it back into the right position. And you know, so I went through the whole thing of, of looking at whether there was a med-mal case. Fortunately, I recovered enough in my personal injury case that really there, there wouldn't have been any point in bringing a med-mal case. But we're, the, the point you alluded to, which is you know, we're all consumers of this and we're all at risk. Every time we we go to the hospital, because or really any medical provider, because of the unfortunate possibility of having a mistake made that you know can can impact you. And I know for me, it's 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 one that really couldn't easily be fixed without rebreaking my jaw and wiring it shut and doing all the things that I had to go through the first time around, which is uh, not very appealing to correct what what was done. So.
1: Right, and and if uh, and the defense of that case, they would say, "Look at Jason; he's so handsome. What possible what what could have been below standard in taking care of him? He's got a profile like you know a movie star." So yeah, and and, and kidding aside, that type of mindset um, pervades the defense of almost every type of injury case. Um, you know it, from surveillance of things uh, of of our clients who are just trying to live their lives and uh, having someone say, well, there you are getting out of a car. It doesn't seem like you were in pain. You were able to get out of your car as if you should wear a sandwich board that says, I'm exiting my car now. My pain is eight out of 10. And if I had the grimace scale here, I'd be frowning. So, uh, you know, the, these kind of uh, continuous, um, insidious attacks on on what is the injury, how extensive in the is the injury, and how well have you recovered is is just part of uh, our daily um, existence, battling for our clients, and it's important to do it. We we have to repel that at every at every turn.
0: I did want to say because you mentioned it. I mean, having seen you in action, you know, you I, you truly can tell how much you care about your clients and getting the best possible result for them. But two, uh, the way you're able to take that complex area of of the medicine and distill it down um, is is certainly impressive to me. That that was one of the things that I noticed in working with you was just that your ability to do that, I think is critical in this area. I'm, I'm curious though, from your early start as a, a lawyer, you know, can you talk about your, your starting out your practice on the defense side and your, you know, was it the conventional typical, you know, way most lawyers get started doing exclusively defense work and did that sort of help you hone your skill set in terms of being able to take that complexity that you deal with today and, and distill it down so, so eloquently?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great, great question. And, and there is a, um, uh, kind of a bedrock commonality for many of us who are um, trying to champion the rights of, of our uh, individual and family clients. I had an interesting upbringing as a lawyer. Um, stepping way back, I'm the first uh, college graduate and professional school graduate in my family. Me too. And uh, I, I I had never met a lawyer until I went to law school. Um, I was a writing and speaking person through college and I was always an avid reader and very, very curious person. Uh, I, I consumed just almost anything that could be written about almost any subject and and Enjoyed a wide variety of reading, so law school was uh, I wouldn't want to say fun, but it bordered on being fun for me because it, it kind of filled that curiosity. Uh, um, it scratched the the curiosity itch in a, in a meaningful way. When I was in law school, I was fortunate enough to get a clerking job that was a kind of a prize, if you will, for some people in the Miami or Southeast Florida area. I got to work for the Podhurst Orsec firm for two years. And uh, as many folks know, that's one of the premier, um, at the time, primarily aviation oriented um, personal injury firms for plaintiffs. And I clerked for them for for two years. Uh, I worked throughout law school and clerked for them for two years and that was a tremendously good experience. When I was um, finishing and graduated, one of the firms that was regularly on the other side defending airplane crash cases, airplane products liability cases, hired me before I finished my third year of law school. and. I started to work, I remember it was, I think it was right after Labor Day of my, the summer I finished law school, I'd taken the bar, I didn't have the results yet and I started to work and I sat down in my office which was next to the senior partner's office and the day started something like, you're going to be responsible for these 10 files, Uh, this one is a 230 person death on an international air crash that happened in Canada. Uh, this one is general aviation crash that happened up the coast of Florida. This one happened in Georgia. One is for this uh, small aircraft manufacturer. This one's for an engine manufacturer. And also this is a personal injury case where you're gonna be representing a boy who got hurt on a ride in a small amusement park in Ocala. and. Few few lawyers who go on the defense side um, get to see both sides immediately, and uh, and that and that as to that case he the the dictate was and you'll you, you'll take this you'll try that case. That was my first morning. I, I'd had no idea what any of that meant, and just hoped that I would make it to the evening. But um, I did that. I did all those things in in the first year of my practice, I was taking expert witness depositions. I, I think I'd argued an appeal in um, the third district court of appeal. I had, if not tried that personal injury case, we had gotten it ready for trial. Perhaps it went to trial in the second year of my practice. And I was already beginning to well, I wasn't beginning to, I was getting a a tremendous foundation of what this world of personal injury and wrongful death cases were like on both sides of the fence. And um, as time wore on, I I did that for about three, three and a half years. And as the time wore on, I started to get more and more interested in representing the victims. Um, And I was taking what I learned from the complexities of representing product manufacturers and other comp severely or seriously complex um, uh, tort or personal injury scenarios and putting them to use on the plaintiffs side uh, of my you know of, of my workload um, one case I remember was a commercial plaintiff's case. <clears throat> And it had been handled by one of the partners at the firm. And there was a summary judgment entered against the plaintiff in the case. And It involved a local investor who bought a product that was at the time supposed to be able to help you open a store and do printing where you'd no longer, people would no longer have to go and spend a lot of money at big printing jobs. And there was a very, very famous uh, European company that had centuries of renown for its printing presses. And they had come out with this product that could, you could basically plug it and play it and sell the service that you were a printing shop. And this gentleman went and took out a lease in Coral Gables in the store and bought the product. And when he bought it, of course, they told him there were seven or eight sold and all the people who bought them were doing great with them. And he he bought it and plugged it in and had some training for one day. And I don't think it ever printed or made a photocopy one time. It did nothing, except it nearly bankrupted him. And the file, uh, the case, for some reason, a summary judgment had been entered against him and it went up on appeal. when it came back, again, my senior partner at the time said to me, Andrew, you're gonna take over this case. I think it was called Burton. Uh, You're gonna take over the Burton case. Um, it just came back from appeal the summary judgment was reversed try it get a result I said what are you looking for what we know what's about he said you'll figure it out and I went into the then paper file room because of course there was nothing the only people who had electronic anything were our assistants who were usually much smarter and more knowledgeable than we as young lawyers and probably still still so today and I went into the file room and they file that existed at the time spanned the entirety of you know a 10 by 20 file room across the top shelf and it took me about a week to read the file and get bearings on it and basically what I saw was that this giant manufacturer had been stonewalling the discovery so of course the plaintiff couldn't get um, beyond summary judgment they couldn't get anything so I put my shoulder into it and started getting court dates for discovery objections. And um, after about three or four of those, the trial judge turned to the defense lawyers. It was a Tuesday morning. I remember he used to set hearings at seven in the morning to really weed out who was actually gonna show up for a serious dispute. And I was there every, every Tuesday or Thursday for a few weeks at seven in the morning. And the judge finally got a bit frustrated and said to the defense lawyers, Every time you come in here, you lose. Here's my order. And he basically ordered them to just disgorge everything that had been requested in the discovery up to that point. He said, and You have it today's Tuesday, you have till Saturday at 10 a.m. And I remember sitting in the conference room on a Saturday waiting for some delivery. and." 950 a messenger came and delivered two bankers boxes of documents and as i was going through them it was just extraordinary it was everything that our client had told us that happened to him was true and in the documents was a single letter from the mother corporation which was in europe to the local corporation which was headquartered in new hampshire and it said I believe we have a sick puppy on our hands. It was two sentences long. That was one of the two sentences. And I had that blown up and I used to sit it, it was a three by six blow up. And I used to sit it behind me at every deposition that I took in the case. And it took about another six months and they ended up paying a significant seven figure result for the case and they couldn't believe what had happened to them. And then I said, wait, I've got one more for you. We finished the case. And then I said, good morning, here's case number two, because the very next customer that they had sold it to had the exact same problem. And in preparing the case, that customer decided to hire me to pursue the same claims for them. So that that one ended of course in short order, but curiosity and you know, avidity uh, were were great helps there. And when you talk about complex ideas, I went up to what was then the beginning of what they call like the East Coast Silicon Valley up in, I think it's Nashua, New Hampshire. And I was deposing some computer engineers about why this thing didn't work. I said, well, you have part A and it seems to work and your part, the part that you made is part B. And they said, yeah, we, we never, we never actually had them together in a room. So I said, let, let me see if I understand this. I said, basically you, you knew that your Corvette had a great body shell and a suspension and you thought, well, if we take the engine from you know uh, a Ferrari and we just stuff it in there, it'll work just fine. And they said, yeah, something like that. I said, except you never road tested it. They said, no, we never road tested it at all. And, and those were the kinds of things, and and those kinds of analogies helped bring it home not only for the court but to the defendant in the case that they understood what was going to happen if this got rolled out.
0: So was that part of that that transition to, hey, I I really prefer the plaintiff's side, and yeah, you know, how did that roll into the? medical malpractice ultimately, and your kind of approach to consumer healthcare cases, because I know that's different.
1: Everything in there, everything that had been happening, of course, were consumers on both sides. Um, This story is probably not unlike a lot that other people have experienced in many ways, but I was defending an airline in a terrible crash case, and I was lead trial lawyering it maybe i was in my second or third year i litigated the case and we were in trial for i don't know four or five weeks and it involved the crew who were suing the airline everyone had perished in this terrible terrible crash all of the passenger victims had been had their cases resolved but the crew cases were not resolved at the time the workman's comp bar was a bit lower and there were also non-comp defendants that were sued and we represented one of them and even the individual owner of the case. And the entire trial was basically my responsibility and they just watched me do it. We tried the entire case and the jury went out to deliberate. And while we were waiting, the our client, who was from London, from the Lloyds, was sitting there watching the whole trial the whole time. And they went outside and they came back in and uh, announced my senior partner announced the judge the case had been resolved. And I thought, oh, okay, um, interesting. And we, everybody, walked out. And I said to the client, "What, what happened? Were you not happy with the work I was doing?" He said, "Oh no, you were." Fantastic. He said, we we held on to the money long enough, it was time to pay them. And I I was so disgusted. It wasn't that I didn't understand inherently that basically that's the insurance model, if you will, later is better than now. But to to be so overt about it, basically kind of glib, uh, it just turned my stomach forever. I thought I can, I cannot do this as my life's work. Um, I want to be on that side of the courtroom. I want to be helping those people stop this from happening to the best of my ability. You know, I, I, I don't want them to get paid when it's the insurance company feels like it's time or the enterprise feels like it's time to do so.
0: Yeah, I remember very distinctly feeling that way when I, you know, stopped doing, uh, defense work, you know, I, I was doing med mal defense work and then workers comp defense work. And when I decided to get into the settlement services world, I, I said, I will not do it on the defense side. I just, I always felt like I was part of the problem, never a solution. And while they're entitled to their defense, I just don't want to be the one doing it. I want to be the one helping the people that have, you know, been through something pretty horrific. So I, I completely understand and connect with exactly what you've described because it is it's difficult I think being on that side and unless you can completely convince yourself that you know it's it's not that bad but when you see people that have been hurt the way you know you see them and we see them what we do it's it's I just don't know how anybody defends a case like that without it you know digging at your soul somehow
1: yeah I, I, there was a famous at the time or well-known uh all state or state farm lawyer who defended all their auto cases here in miami and uh i remember suddenly there was big news at the time of course you know, pre-social media things where new, news actually took some time to trickle out i think the parking lot attendant at the courthouse parking lot was the main dispenser of information. Uh, he knew everybody and everything. And he said, Oh, did you hear so and so was doing plaintiff's work now. And I, I ran into the guy one day and he said, Yeah, I, I just didn't want to have my tombstone read. He saved Allstate $5 million. Yeah, and, and everybody's heard some variation of that. But when you've done it, it I guess it depends on your constitution. I mean, uh, it, it didn't sit right with me. I, I, I grew up in New York. I'm a Jewish kid from Brooklyn. You know, I think uh, David versus Goliath is kind of culturally built in. Um, so uh, I, I just like fighting for the people who come to me and they can't believe what's happened to them and can't imagine that they can fight back and that I or we, my partner and I and others like us will fight back for them for free until we get them paid. It's um, their minds are often kind of blown by that. They 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 can't believe that there's it costs them not one dollar unless we get them a recovery. And I think it's an it's an amazing um, amazing part of our system and it's true And I think across the country I don't think there's any place where, where it doesn't happen that way but it makes me very proud to be able to stand up for people who um, who, who can't and and say I'm here for them I am just me one guy that makes me proud so. uh, I, I
0: love that uh, it's you know and the opportunity and privilege we get to be a part of of that to some extent at the end of the case is it, it's pretty, pretty cool. And, you know, that's one of the things that bothers me when I hear people talking about, you know, trial lawyers in a negative way, because, you know, you guys take all the risk and you you finance these cases and it's not cheap, especially medical malpractice cases. Uh, you know, it's a pretty big risk that you take every time you take a case. I mean, obviously it's calculated because you guys, know how to evaluate cases but it's still a risk you know and it people don't understand that you know what you guys do also you know has a societal impact the change that it can bring about is is pretty dramatic
1: yeah i mean well you, you and i have sat together countless times physically in, in mediations and settlement conferences and on myriad phone calls over the years and you know, what you you bring and your people and your firm brings to us is an incredible benefit for our clients and, and security for us as the lawyers trying to champion their causes. Because again, we're, uh, the other side has, while they may not get the entitlement to get paid limitless amounts, they, they have restraints from their clients. They have essentially Unlimited resources, if their client decides to just turn the spigot on, and uh, say, "Okay, let's do it all." Um, my, my, ultimately, my, my final transition during during those first few years. So, as I started to get more and more into the plaintiffs' work and started to meet a client, get hired individually, you know, as opposed to having a case given. me by one of the partners and that that in and of itself is it was a momentous thing i you know getting hired for the first time by somebody and uh, i remember getting hired for the first time by someone on a very small auto case um i was actually buying a car and i was negotiating i like to negotiate i was negotiating with the sales manager about the car and he was probably my father's age and I was still either in my late twenties or early 30s. And he said, uh, I really like you. My daughter has this had this car accident and uh, she hasn't done anything about it. I think, I think I wanted to hire you. And I thought, well, this sounds great. He just wants to get the car sold. Um but she did. She hired me on this small automobile case and I got her a recovery. And it was uh, what I haven't handled in many years a soft tissue case for for a variety of reasons, not that they don't deserve to be fully and well handled, but we just don't do them. Um, And she was so happy. And the very next thing that happened a few months later was that her best friend called me and her best friend had just lost her infant child. So in two steps, I went from representing A young lady who had a hurt neck soft tissue case to representing a lovely young couple who had tragically lost their daughter and um it was it was uh a real it was an extraordinary experience for me it was one of the last thing cases i handled in the defense firm i don't think i was doing any defense work at the time at all by then. I was just doing plaintiff's work in this firm. And excuse me, except for one, there was one case I had with a lawyer who was representing a young woman and uh, a piece of a medical product had migrated somewhere in her body that it shouldn't have. We were representing the product manufacturer and the lawyer was excellent and um, we got to be friendly. you know, through traveling and depositions, you know, I, I said, this. This, I, I really want to do what you're doing. And she asked me if I knew somebody, a particular lawyer in Miami. I said, well, I, I know of him. He's the president of the Academy of Trial Lawyers, but I, I've never met him. And uh, she said, well, he, he's one of my best friends. And I said, well, if you wouldn't mind, would you make the introduction? and that lawyer did made the introduction and I went shortly thereafter to work with that person and we were together for a number of years the lawyer who made the introduction ended up with a job that wasn't bad became uh supreme court of florida justice so um that was the end I I made the complete switch I think it was uh 92 or so 92 93 right around then and uh have happily never looked back i mean it's a it's a very uh, as you know very challenging business as a profession it, it can be it's rewarding for, for you emotionally as a person it can it can be rewarding financially uh it can be challenging in both ways uh, but I, I would never, I would never flip the switch back the other way and say, "Oh, I, I should have stayed on the other side. I would have enjoyed that more." It, it's never occurred to me for one moment. I, the idea of being able to take an idea, because really, that's what clients come to you with—is an idea. <clears throat> it's kind of like somebody saying, I want, "I want to build a house," and you say, "What? What? what where do you want to put it?" And they go, "I don't know." Then, what do you want it to look like? I don't know. Um, how many rooms do you want? I don't know. I just want a house. And, and that's in large part how cases start with lawyers like me. People come to us with a problem. They just need a solution. But they often have almost no idea what the house should look like, where it should be, how many rooms it should be, um, one level, two level, and so forth. And I get to, <clears throat> I get to Plan it, design it, build it, and deliver it. And playing all those roles is, for me, very satisfying. I I like to be able to do all that stuff. I I'm a very hands-on lawyer. I think you you know that you've <clears throat> you've interacted with me so many times in my cases. Uh, I, I like to know everything. That I can that's going on in the case. And um, it helps me better build them for my clients and for conveying the information to the other folks.
0: That's a good segue because you know I've seen it in action in terms of your approach with the med mal stuff and you know the consumer healthcare cases. And how does that differ? from the more typical approach? Because your approach is, is definitely different, and what prompted that approach? Uh,
1: they did. Uh, so when I say they, I mean the healthcare business did. Uh, in Florida, well, nationally, of course, consumer uh, health, consum- healthcare consumers' rights have always been under attack, like all plaintiffs or tort victims in every state. and and sometimes even federally. And I think from the day I began practicing and probably before I started practicing at all, there's been a near continuous effort to minimize the rights of victims, alter the rights of victims and protect whatever the theoretically needed protected group was. For most of my career, one of those groups has been healthcare providers, doctors and hospitals. And um, one of the things that was being done through the early part of my years practicing was this crazy thing that was allowed and is allowed under Florida law. And that's that doctors could practice without liability insurance. Your, Your plumber can't your contractor can't, the car company, you know, the, the, the store where you buy your car can't or get it service can't, but the person who services your body parts can practice without coverage. And that was obviously both dangerous and infuriating, not just for the patients, but for people like us trying to get recoveries for them. And something happened in the, early to mid 2000s, and it had a lot to do with, I think the way private equity businesses and investment businesses done and where investment dollars were chasing opportunity. And a lot of smart people in finance and banking realized that healthcare was just an enormous chunk of the expenditure pie in the country and the healthcare as a business basically could return unlimited amounts of money. And they started to eat up individual practices. The solo practitioner or the two person practice started to decline. And then within a few short years, virtually disintegrated and healthcare became what it always was but overtly that is right up front in your face as opposed to kind of back behind the scenes and that is it was a business an enterprise business everything from the parking lot gate to the dumpster in the back and everything within the walls is the responsibility the ultimate responsibility of that healthcare enterprise and I can't remember the exact moment that the bulb went on in my head and thought this whole idea of defending cases, which we still see regularly, but the notion that a doctor, he's or she is just a person that we let practice in this hospital or health system. We, we don't have anything to do with how they do it if you have an issue with the care that was delivered, deal with them. We're just a place where they do it as if they were vacationing at a hotel and doing their work, you know, inside a hotel, um, where the hotel had nothing to do with what was going on with the delivery of medical care. And I thought that this is total nonsense and I'm going to unravel it. And so I, I thought, well, I'm reasonably good at doing it the way we do it. And I I think I have a pretty good understanding of it. Other people seem to think I have a pretty good understanding of it. I wanna understand how they do it. So I taught myself the healthcare side of healthcare. And, And I know that sounds a bit crazy because as plaintiff's lawyers suing healthcare providers for victims, you would describe yourself as a healthcare lawyer. But in actuality, healthcare lawyers are a totally different practice. They're a different business. They deal with the contractual and regulatory side of healthcare, risk management, patient safety, credentialing, enterprise risk management, corporate liability, corporate structure. And again, being an avid reader and a curious person, I thought, I need to know what they know. I need to read what they read. I need to speak their language. And, and I started to do it, and I started to do it avidly and, and as deeply as I could with the time that I had otherwise to, you know, push my cases forward. And it has, um, it is my core ethos. Uh, you know, it, it is my Firm belief, and I I try to bring it to bear in some way, shape, or form in representing all of my clients. That unless they've actually only been seen by someone in a doctor's office, that the responsible um, thing for your bad outcome is not just this lone person, but it is the enterprise that lock, stock, and barrel runs. The whole show. And when I talk to the defense, the putative defendants, you know, the, the people who may be on the other side and then become on the other side and their lawyers, I try to convey that to them, both just telling them, I, I'm not going to be interested in just Dr. Jane Smith or Bob Jones. I'm interested in your enterprise client. Please let your client know that's where I'm going. And uh, they'll often say things to me. And and you know, Florida has just, uh, I would bet we have the best defense bar in the country in terms of defending medical malpractice cases. Smart, aggressive, creative. um, Many of them are my longtime friends and colleagues, and I have incredible respect for them. And they'll often say the ones that are representing the enterprise speak to your colleague his client or her client is the individual who did wrong by yours and and it it takes some effort to explain to them no no it's all yours you own the big top that circus is yours everybody performing in it is under your control the only thing you may not have done is put your hand on the surgeon's hand to move the scalpel, but otherwise your responsibility. And and that's been for many years now, my um, very clear approach to cases. And because the way the business of the delivery of healthcare is now almost completely um, a business and there is virtually no individual doctor, it has dovetailed, my, my my thought from 10 years ago uh, has continued rolling because the business world has made healthcare one of the biggest businesses in the world.
0: Can you talk briefly just about this, this concept of how uh, your work improves not only the client's life, but all of ours as healthcare consumers. So I think that's a pretty important point with your approach that you just described.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it's one of the things that makes you feel really good in addition to getting your client their recovery is in almost every case I'm hired on and probably all of my colleagues get the same requests. Almost none of the clients ask about what's the case worth and when can we get our recovery? I would say, if not 100%, 99.8% say, can you help this never happen to someone else? And, And I tell you the same thing that I tell them, I can't promise you that it will happen in your case, but I have a high level of confidence that this will produce some change in policy and procedure and method of dealing with these healthcare issues because we're going to present it in a way that they're gonna say, this needs to be corrected or or modified. Um, Many years ago, I started representing among the medical cases. Uh, I started doing a lot of cases involving children who were injured in delivery who'd get one of their arms paralyzed. Um, And these injuries basically happen in a very simple mechanical way. As the baby is coming out of the birth canal, if one of the baby's shoulders gets tucked up against the area of the pubic bone and the physician delivering the baby or the midwife delivering the baby pulls too hard on the baby's head, They'll either extremely stretch or sometimes tear the nerves or the electrical system that powers up the arm. It's usually just one arm. And almost all of us have been in the street and seen somebody who's got one arm that looks shorter and flexed up towards their chest. And most people wonder, oh, how did that happen? Maybe they had a car crash or something. So, sometimes it can. In, in football, they call them stinger injuries, where you hit the ground and the helmet gets pushed away from the shoulder kind of thing. But with babies, it almost exclusively happens because of either the physician pulling too hard when the baby is not coming out otherwise And sometimes one of the assisting staff will push on mom's belly either at the direction of, or because they think it's right to kind of try to push the baby out. So if you're thinking of it's like pushing on a toothpaste tube that's got a lump in it and they think that by pushing harder on the lump, it'll get the toothpaste out, but all it does is lodge it up further against the pubic bone. When I first started doing those cases, um, the defense was kind of as it is today these things just happen they can happen without anybody touching the baby to a large extent that has been debunked almost completely it's just it's just a fantasy but in the late 90s early 2000s a couple of doctors started doing repairs to the nerves that were damaged there were a couple of folks in texas and one here in florida and they were doing great things for these kids the kids would be injured at birth the folks delivering them in the hospitals would tell the parents it'll probably get better in a few weeks it wouldn't they'd go to their pediatrician the pediatrician would shrug her shoulders or shrug her shoulders and say "I, i don't know what to tell you And that would be the end of the story. As these cases started getting litigated, and as I started pursuing them for more and more people, a couple of years in, I noticed that the pediatricians started to not only pick up on the injury, but refer the babies and their families to these surgeons. Whereas before they had thought there's nothing to be done about this. And then we went through a period of time where the defense of the cases was that surgery is voodoo, you know, it's a that's made up nonsense. It became not only a real thing that was providing real benefit to these little babies and children and adults as they got older, but it became the standard of care. In other words, if pediatricians were seeing otherwise well babies, but their arm wasn't working and they weren't referring the kids to a surgery center, you know, or a specialist who who could evaluate it and see if that child was a candidate for the fix it surgery, that was no good. And the pediatricians certainly didn't want to be the ones to have to be standing there saying, oh, uh, well, we missed the window of opportunity because I didn't send you to a surgeon or refer you for an opinion for surgery. So it took some years. It went from this isn't a thing to this is a thing that the plaintiffs made up to, well, the baby needed surgery and had surgery. So I guess there's no question about the injury. We're going to cling to this idea that it just happened as the baby, you know, uh, emerge from the birth canal, but the fight over the other things has virtually disappeared. And 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 that's something I'm I'm very proud to have been part of. There are a number of us around the country who do these cases. I've done a tremendous number of them in Florida, just a tremendous number over the years. But it's very I, I'm very pleased to know that when these kids get injured now at birth almost all of them are referred to potential surgery centers for at least evaluation, if not the actual surgeries. And as well, the surgery centers have grown. So whereas there used to be only a couple of places in the country to do them, those couple of early folks have now taught enough people, and the programs have developed in enough of the Tertiary care centers, you know, the high-level care centers, that these things can be fixed almost anywhere in the country. So, if you're in Oregon, you don't have to come to Miami or or to Texas to get your baby fixed. There's probably someone, you know, in Portland. There's probably there's there's someone in Boston. There's someone in Washington. There's someone in Los Angeles, and 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 that's a a, a thrill for me, almost as thrilling as getting regular phone calls now from folks for who uh, I took care of their children, many with you years ago, and they're saying, oh, we're excited to tell you that, um, you know, Rebecca is going to college now and she just got her first check from the planning that you did with Mr. Lazarus when working on the settlement for her. And, uh, you know, she still doesn't know how we've taken care of her, how much money is going to be coming to her. We're trying to keep it you know quiet as long as possible. And they'll send me a picture of their beautiful now late teenage children. And it's pretty it's pretty thrilling. So in
0: the uh limited time we have left, there's a couple questions I I usually kind of end our podcast with. And one of those questions is and it's especially I think relevant for your practice with, you know, how difficult some of the injuries are and situations are, is how do you yourself connect with the harm that's been suffered by one of your clients to everybody else, their their experience, so that you can adequately convey to the jury the, uh, you know, the, the s- why in this particular case there needs to be justice for that particular family.
1: Yeah, I I think perhaps one of the fortunate things about doing a significant amount of medical cases is that the golden rule, if you will, which you're not supposed to violate, is built in. There's virtually no one who hasn't been from either being wronged by being made to sit and wait in someone's office waiting for three hours for their... 9 a.m. appointment and then told at noon, oh, um, doctor's running a little late, she'll be with you in an hour, to people who are in extreme pain, anguish, or broken in the emergency department and can barely open their eyes because they're in such exquisite pain and someone in a, you know, a, a lime green shirt and matching tie comes in with a clipboard and says, here, sign these things. And I've personally experienced it. My loved ones have personally experienced it. And there isn't virtually, there isn't anyone I know who hasn't been victimized, if you will, by these um, lopsided uh, delivery of healthcare. And the mechanisms and tools so are, are, are well understood to everybody. And then when I, the way I connect it is when I talk to the people and their depositions, the healthcare delivery people, doctors, nurses, and so forth, I like to ask them how they explain what they do when they go to a barbecue or parent-teacher night to strangers because jargon is the usual tool of the folks on the other side of the table from me and while I may understand what they're saying I usually ask them to repeat it as I say in English Um, I say I'll start with what's your job and they'll tell me their job title and I say "I, I, I think I know what all those words mean separately would would you mind telling maybe this fireman, this policeman, this teacher, and this person who works as a checkout person at Walmart, there's nobody in the room with us, but they might be one day. Um, What do you mean by that? And they'll say, oh, well, I'm in charge of deciding whether that person gets to continue to practice at the hospital. Say, ah, so when we hear privileging and credentialing, you're the gatekeeper or one of the gatekeepers about whether that doctor or that nurse practitioner still gets to practice at your healthcare business. Right, Mr. Ellenberg, that's what I do. And then I'll use that word. So in your gatekeeping work, did you know, and if you didn't, how did you not know that Dr. Smith had seven prior cases, four of which involve the same type of problem as this one. And so that that tries to I try to put it all together in a simple, regular, plain spoken way. I, I remember I was at a mediation once involving what we call a negligent credentialing case, again a gatekeeper issue. I personally had sued this physician twice. And when the third client of mine, you know, came up, and the, the physician had no coverage at all, and I called the hospital lawyers, and I said, "It's all—it's all you—all it's you, all you on this one. Nothing for, from them." And they said, we, "We got no liability here. Nothing. We—we we don't even have a concern about nursing." I, I said, "Okay." And we—I remember going to the mediation, and I. Had put together all of the claims history. And um, it's a bit of a Jewish reference, but <laughs> it's like a Torah scroll. I unfurled it like a giant scroll. It took the 20-foot conference table over. And I just said, I'm sorry, so sorry. Let me just, and I laid this thing out, and it was 20 feet long. And I just said, that's this doctor's claims history thanks, I'm done. And that was the end. We, we resolved the case in short order after that. So,
0: so uh, what is one tip you would give other trial lawyers that's part of your secret to success in your niche practice?
1: Uh, it's, the, it's the old saw work very hard which every trial lawyer I know works very very hard but be be mm-hmm. very curious um I, I'm a curious person and, and I still am an avid reader I, I don't I don't read as much fiction as I used to but fiction reading was a tremendous uh information source of course for me growing up but I still read a tremendous amount and there's a tremendous amount much more now available to read behind the curtain or or I say that used to be behind the curtain that's mm-hmm. now now open for anyone or at no cost or at virtually no cost to read and the more you read and the more you become curious the more curious you are the more you read mm-hmm. and it will be almost impossible for that curiosity not to bear fruit in your work you know if you're just proceeding down the path of well i know x and i know i have to prove y and you know z who knows what the outcome is um sure but that other stuff all the stuff on the outside of our uh of, of the of the your lane can come into your lane you know to, to use a current colloquialism everybody says stay stay in your lane I say I don't know what my lane is going to look like yet and, and I, I do that by reading a lot and being very curious and that's that's what I would and have told people when I've spoken publicly or folks who work with me you now I'll sometimes I'll say beat me at the internet and they'll say what do you mean by that and I say, well I'm much older than you you should be much more uh, adept at the internet than me. Beat me at the internet. Find something for me there that I can't find.
0: Great advice. So um, last question, and admittedly, it is a bit self-serving with what Synergy does, but are there things that you're seeing today in the personal injury settlement realm, you know, whether it's, medicare language that the defense is insisting upon or lean resolution issues or anything else you know that you think is is important that you're seeing now more so today
1: Uh, yeah i I think you you and your people have become uh you're bordering on indispensable for us you know I, i know you're a leader in your field and uh i know there are a few others that do it but you whether it we're helping our clients plan what to do with money for themselves or their children or helping them recover as much as they can when uh let's say a health insurer says we want a dollar back, but you don't think they get a dollar back, they should get a penny back. Um Synergy, Jason Lazarus and your incredible team of responsive and intelligent people are are pretty, um, you know, like I said, it's almost indispensable. In terms of what we see on the other side, it's. I would say it's varied because each law firm and lawyer, even though two law firms might represent the same enterprise, you know, firm A and firm B, and you'll have finished a case with firm A and firm B will send you a release. It would look like it was written by a completely different uh, thing. And you'll hear the client wants. I'll say, I'm not so sure the client wants that. I just did one with the client and it read totally differently. There's a lot of um, uh, cut and paste work that goes into these releases. Oftentimes the lawyers don't know how they got there, they'll say, oh, my associate put that together for me, and I put in some other touches. And again, I always say, could we at least make it read in English? You know, it it has four paragraphs that have 17 clauses in it. I I don't know what that sentence means. And, And I remember back when I first, very first started, it wouldn't be valid today for some other legal reasons, but conceptually it remains true. My senior partner at the defense firm said, a release should say the following, here's your money, you promise to go away forever. And that's pretty much what the release should do and say. Everything else is kind of like ornamentation on a Christmas tree. And we work and we work with you a lot to try to keep, the ornamentation to a minimum and certainly the ornamentation that doesn't belong on the tree at all out of it. And, uh, and sometimes the defense lawyers ask for things that they, they, they don't know. They don't intend it to be inappropriate, but they'll, for example, ask the releasing party to have their lawyer agree to something. And I call, usually call my colleagues up again they're as smart and sharp as they come and i say i know you don't mean this but you might have an ethical problem with that you you can't i'm not a party to the case my firm isn't a party to the case and you can't do that they're like oh i, I didn't i didn't know that i said yeah there's an ethics opinion that relates to that you know so um
0: it's interesting you know the i think the releases today pose a pretty significant risk to law firms, particularly ones that are doing higher volume as it relates to Medicare as an example, because I would hazard a guess that if you pulled the releases from 100 different clients who were Medicare beneficiaries, you would see a variety of inappropriate language that was just accepted because the defense voiced it upon the plaintiff. and. Some of that language could be to the detriment of that particular Medicare beneficiary. I've seen releases that have said, you know, the the Medicare beneficiary agrees never to treat with Medicare for injury-related care. Well, that should not be in a release. So I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, lawyers and law firms that have some exposure because of the fact that they're not treating every client the same way in the way they do Their releases and reviewing those releases and making sure that they use appropriate language. You know, for example, you could address Medicare in one paragraph. You do not need five pages of of release language, which is what we're seeing a lot of today, and with completely wrong citations to the Medicare Secondary Care Act and whatnot. So it's interesting that you talked about the releases because I do think that that's. That's an issue that you know, we're trying to raise awareness with trial lawyers just about that specific issue because it does pose a, a threat, I think, from a malpractice standpoint or just from you know the potential for um for having a problem at some point down the line, whether it's, you know, the Department of Justice now going after law firms or whatnot and insisting upon law firms having some kind of you know, program internally to make sure that Medicare is appropriately dealt with. So uh, I I just think that that is an issue that a lot of lawyers don't have on their radar. You, you in particular, are are very, you know, hands on with the release. But what we see really quite frequently is that there isn't that attention to detail with that document. And that's, I think, uh, an area of risk. Yeah, I I
1: feel like I said, you know, I, I, I like to be. I'm in all my cases, so you know we we have the uh, good fortune of not being a volume practice where we're working on the cases we decide we want to work on. Um, so the release, you know, I, I've asked you to review countless releases for me for things that either seemed inappropriate or I knew were inappropriate and asked you or your firm to weigh in with the other side and tell them, please remove that junk. It doesn't belong in there. And as you say, sometimes the, the language is not only inapplicable to the case, but it just might be flat out wrong. I mean, it, it doesn't even reflect what the thing they think they're covering is. And and to to your point about, um, you know, I, I've I've had the same thought. I you know a lot of firms are a different business model. They're doing excellent and important work representing people. Let's say in car crashes and fall down, but they they might have a lot of that work that's handled by staff. And releases are coming in, and you know they get passed on to clients. And I, I've often wondered about. I mean, I I've seen. On occasion, as a guardian, um, you know, a release like that in a case like that, and I say, that that can't be in there, you know. Um, and and sometimes folks know it and say, oh, thanks, I, you know, I I didn't catch it. And sometimes they have no idea. And and I I do imagine that there is some issue in in volume businesses where they're low low price, but a lot of them and the releases just get sent over by. State Farm or GEICO or whatever with all sorts of uh, um, inappropriate or inapplicable language. And it, it, I agree, it could be, could be harmful.
0: So before I let you go, um, I wanted to give you a, a second to talk a little bit about your practice. I, I know you're, and you know, we talked a little bit about your approach being quite unique and I know you work with other lawyers. Um, can you just talk about the scope of your practice and a little bit about your practice?
1: Sure. Well, I, um, I've always practiced statewide and still do today. And it's as technology improves, it becomes easier and easier to do so. I um, I tend to see a lot of the same lawyers on the other side who are, again, I I can't speak highly enough of them. They are the, the best and the brightest and, and uh, make me work hard to do well for my clients. Um, I enjoy uh, working with colleagues, I work with a lot of friends. Just talking about their cases because we educate each other just to do it. Because we we just want to do the best we can for our clients. So a lot of shop talk, if you will, between uh, myself and and people, many of whom you know and work with, uh, happens a lot of the time. I like working with my colleagues. There are a number of people with whom I. You know, we, we share responsibility on cases, work them together. Um, I'm working on cases with folks out of state for the same reasons. And so, some of those cases are happening because of my thinking about enterprise liability and having had some private conversations with folks and them saying, wow, we don't know that at all. Um, would you Would you join us in a case and bring that to bear? Um, I, as you, you, you read my bio or some notes from my bio, I've been fortunate enough to have my colleagues think well enough of me that they've included me in these best lawyers in America for, I don't know, 12 or so years. I've been in every single edition of super lawyers since it began continuously, Um uh, and The first time it happened, I I just landed in my desk in the magazine. I thought, wow, that's pretty nice. I I wonder who did that. And then it happened a second time. And, um, you know, my partner and I are, I think we were told this year by the super lawyers folks that we're the only partners who've continuously been in it since inception in the state of Florida. Maybe there was one other. So, you know, my partner, Andy Needle, who's just a spectacular lawyer and great person. And, um, and we've been partners for over two decades now. And uh, I, I, hope, I hope it continues to go on as long as we're both good and healthy and uh, enjoy doing what we do, but we certainly enjoy doing it together. And I, I'm proud to know that other people seem to think we do it well for our clients
0: so um we'll put it in the show notes put your contact information there but what is the best way for other lawyers who might be listening to the podcast to get in touch with you if they have a case they want to go counsel or refer to you
1: sure Uh, the best way is to call me my cell phone is 305-206-0305 and unless it comes up as spam risk i'm going to take the call if i don't take the call please leave me a message but um that's my main point it's never from the day that cell phones arrived until today uh i've never hidden my cell phone it hasn't been something that required special permission for staff to give out it's on my florida bar webpage it's on our website and uh, of course obviously email but the cell phone is is the way to get me i'm i'm readily available
0: we'll include your email and website uh on the podcast show notes so appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join me today on trial review and uh to our audience tune in next time for the next episode
1: thank you thanks for having me i appreciate
0: it thanks for tuning in to trial review you can find more at trial review.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future